Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, on this week's New Statesman podcast, we discuss this weekend's Black Lives Matter protest, the tearing down of a slaver statue in Bristol, and you ask us, has Labour picked its last two leaders in the wrong order? So we're recording after a weekend of Black Lives Matter protests across the UK to reflect what's been happening in the US. And now really we're we're on to the sort of day four of the UK reactions where the debate rages on about whether or not it was right to topple a statue of a slave trader in Bristol and the nature of some of the protests in London as well. Alva, I think you, you went to the protest, didn't you? Mm-hmm. What was the atmosphere like and how did you find it? It was very emotional. I think I'm going to sound very tired on this podcast just because I've been really, really upset by how this has been covered and how I don't think that the experience of people protesting has been really at all reflected in any of the coverage. Because, it, I mean, it obviously, you know, there were some violent incidents which have been widely reported at the end and, and the toppling of that statue has been making headlines but you know there were hundreds of thousands of people there all day or from two o'clock and it sort of all those incidents happened around six or seven p.m like much later on when most people had gone home it was you know remarkably moving you know these are people who who are ultimately being you know prepared to risk their lives to attend this protest which is something that has been upsetting a lot of people on twitter and so on because we're still in the middle of a pandemic but i don't think there's been so much recognition of of why people might want to take that risk to protest about something like this it was very sort of somber I had a real sense of of just a huge group of of people in grief I don't think I've seen any footage of it online but there was a really moving moment where sort of everyone took a knee for George Floyd and it was like a huge group of people and it was completely quiet I mean, I've been been to other protests and, and there have been sort of funny moments. And I'm, I think, I'm sure there were sort of funny moments at that protest as well because it was so big and, you know, lighthearted moments are nice. But I find it like really, really somber and sad. And I just think it's a real shame that that hasn't been reflected so much. Yeah, I think the first thing that came up on the BBC News homepage today was Boris Johnson's quote about thuggish behaviour. 
And so I do think that when stories like these are reported, they often lead with the politicians' reactions, if you see so see what I mean on the sort of next day, you know, the aftermath of the protests. And that's what I found as well. Stephen, what did you make of the protests over the weekend? I'll be honest, I kind of started from the position and like, and indeed there's somewhere on, there's a clip of me on the radio saying exactly this. There are two purposes of a protest, right? One is essentially to inconvenience the state to a point that whatever they are failing to do via democratic means they feel they, well, via parliamentary means they feel they have to do. And the other is to get attention. And I personally wasn't sure that I didn't think that the disease risks didn't outweigh the benefit of doing this second set of demonstrations on the Saturday and the Sunday. But I also kind of semi took the view that I just wasn't going to kind of like be all that sort of up in that as an issue because mm. people have decided to do it. I'm really, really uneasy about the prohibition on protesting the coronavirus bill. It's the bit of the lockdown regulations and I think is the most troubling. But weirdly, I guess this puts me in like the minority of a minority in every sense, right? And then I doubt this is a majority opinion and I really doubt that of the people who do think it, then they were broadly in the, there's no point. I was quite into them dunking the thing, the statue into the river. You know, I completely think that it's better for these things to be done through to the electoral process, but I could at least kind of see the point of it. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I wouldn't do it myself, but I can see why you've done it. What have you made of it, Anish? Well, I'm, I find it interesting because we've had, you know, quite a few instances of these statue sort of focused debates over the past few years. The Roads Must Fall campaign in Oxford is the one that really stands out to me. And I always find that historians who who argue that, that you know, statues are, you know, you're whitewashing history and statues are just a sort of symbol of, of history that need to be left alone and aren't a sort of condemnation or a, or a condonement of whoever the person is, is being depicted. I just find that argument so bizarre for a historian. I did history and I just think, isn't it better for an item of British history to take on a new meaning, to reflect the, the changing sort of fabric of our history? As a historian, that should be the most interesting thing about the statue. It takes on these new things. It gets dunked in the water. That's that's part of its history now. That's part of its fabric because history is always evolving. So I do find it strange, that argument that things need to stay the same in order to preserve our history. Of course, we have to be aware of our history, but the way that we're aware of that is from, you know, the scars that these kind of symbols collect over time. I don't think a lot of the people, particularly on the right, who who disagree with, with what the protesters did or disagree with the police letting them do it, would feel as squeamish about watching people pulling down statues in the former Soviet bloc, for example. That was sort of a joyful sign of liberation and democracy. I do find that people uh, don't engage their sort of historical brain a lot of the time when things like this happen. Of course, as Stephen said, that there, there, there would be an ideal way for that to happen, but that's been part of sort of Bristol's modern campaigning history for a while and nothing's changed. And that that, that speaks to the broader the broader issue with all of this sort of, oh, but we must, it's fantastic that people have a right to protest, but it must stay peaceful. How do you protest a system that's sort of designed to, to be unjust, you know, if, if you don't have the formal means to achieve something because the system is racist or because it doesn't recognise certain wishes that, that the people who wish wish to use the formal channels have been pushing for, for for decades, then what other means do you have other than informal ways of protesting? I kind of think ultimately, I'm sure there's a glaring counterexample to this, but in general, 
every direct action is a policy failure, right? The most obvious example being the poll tax riots. In then, if you were the Conservative government, at every stage, you would have been better served by U-turning and not having to go through that, not having to lose your prime minister, not losing 200 odd councillors, et cetera, et cetera. And in many ways, this is another example of that, right? In the Bristol Council has basically had an anti that statue majority on it for some time, and they have failed to do anything about it. Now, like I said, I would not have done that myself. And I think I broadly do agree with Keir Starmer's position on this. But it is, again, a reflection on the policy failure of the council to just deal with the statue in the way that he's nominally been trying to do for some time. And also, as with you, one of the things I find really fascinating about this is that we have this weird attitude towards public municipal space that we don't towards like public art gallery and any other form of public art. Like the the Tate Modern has been rehung, I think, six times in my lifetime. And we accept that's a thing that happens. Whereas in the public space, you have this weird thing. And I see this very starkly, well, not every day in Westminster at the moment, but I see this very starkly around Westminster, right? Where in the statues around Westminster, the one of the founders of NATO does not have a statue. The first woman cabinet minister does not have a statue, et cetera, et cetera, right? You have huge pioneers of the late 19th, early 20th, and throughout through the 21st century who are not memorialized in the building at all. And yet you have bluntly second tier cabinet ministers who happen to be dead before <laughs> they built the building who have statues <laughs> and in an odd way right like, there is no other and, and and it's fascinating to me how the statues in the palace of westminster are treated entirely differently to the art right the art changes all the time right and it's taken to museums or it's put somewhere else and we accept that that is a normal mm. and sensible thing to do and yet weirdly you have a situation in which with a finite amount of public space Everyone kind of goes like, oh, well, we couldn't possibly move any of the existing statues. That would be crazy. I say that as someone who very much would not have moved this statue in that way. But it does just seem kind of slightly strange to me this way that somehow it's like, as you say, everyone just turns off the bit of their brain they either used to think about history or the bit of their brain they used to think about public art and just kind of goes like, yeah, that's always been there, I guess. Yeah, it's almost like why the fourth plinth in, in Trafalgar Square was so radical. It's like, why is there just one plinth that you can change? <laughs> I think that the the parallel with roads must fall is a is a really useful one. And I've been thinking about it a lot as the debate about the Bristol statue continues, um, because that that coincided with when I was at university and I was sort of involved with it. And the roads must fall movement was sort of one of the main ways in which I really seriously thought about race and racism and, and learned a lot about it for the first time from my peers so for so for people who weren't aware of it it was this movement around 2015 campaigning for the statue of Cecil Rhodes to be taken down from above the entrance of Oriel because he was you know one of like the worst <laughs> I mean there's always this sl- slippery slope argument when you know people say oh but if we take down a statue of this person what about these other historical figures but I don't think that applies in the case of Cecil Rhodes who really was sort of one of the worst architects of apartheid and directly and indirectly responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths and really awful man but there was this movement in Oxford campaigning to have that taken down and placed in a museum and there was talk of of maybe you know just having a a plaque or something to explain the context a bit better Um, it was this completely peaceful movement from students 
just lots of like really thoughtful, really intelligent, interesting, inspiring people. And it was completely outright rejected and unlike trashed in in the in the press. I remember how at first it wasn't because at the time Oxford was very squeamish around the potential of bad press or access and it was uh, this doesn't this isn't so much the case anymore but at the time including the right-wing press everyone kind of loved stories about Oxford and Cambridge being really elitist and that being a kind of scandal even in something like the Daily Mail so the initial coverage was quite positive and then really shifted and became really hostile and lots of the individual student organizers who were really really young were sort of singled out with horrible stories in the Daily Mail and all those arguments around history that you were saying, Anush, um, like really, really ring true because the argument was the, that, you know, if if they recontextualized that statue, that it would be whitewashing history, you know, or that it was sort of symptoma- symptomatic of the sort of broader anti-free speech trend on campus or something like that, when like these were really, really interesting people who were really engaging with the history of this university and sort of saying, you know, we know that this university was, you know, built on the spoils of imperialism and racism and we can't change that, but, but we want to change how we relate to that. And they made a really great case for it and it and it wasn't really listened to. And that statue is still there with absolutely no context. And the reason it's still there is basically because benefactors of Oriel College got in touch and said that they would withdraw their own funding of the college if it was taken down. Because I think it basically tapped into this fear among people who contribute money to Oxford and Cambridge colleges that, you know, they might donate a lot of money to be remembered for posterity and then they would be thought of differently in future and actually their their legacy wouldn't be permanent. But just this idea that, like, because we've been hearing a lot about this statue at the weekend, that, you know, they should have found a democratic way of doing it, having observed people, like, doing that, I think, impeccably and making, like, you know, just like all these Oxford history students making like really passionate, polite cases for changing the context of this statue and how we relate to it. It's really, really hard to get it done. I mean, we know that that was the case in Bristol, that they couldn't agree on how to reword the the statue or like reword the commemoration alongside the statue. But, you know, like I've seen in practice people trying to to do that and it not working. And so... I think, it, you know, it's like a remarkable moment in history, as Anush was saying, and it feels like people have got their priorities slightly wrong if they're if they're too worried about that, rather than celebrating that, you know, a, a, a statue of, of a slave trader being taken down in the middle of, of international anti-racism protests. Exactly. Like, what a fantastic historical artefact that statue now is. You know, covered in graffiti, probably with some rust from the water in a museum in however many years' time, and people go and see it, and they read about why it looks like the way it does. And when this happened, it was a pandemic, and there were protests because of, you know, the world waking up to the way that sort of injustice is so ingrained in our justice and and penal systems. You know, what what a great piece of history. I mean, it, it moves the statue on. I was always taught that history, you know, is is made by historians revising the things that, that are always, you know, received as true or the wisdom of a historical event and then and reanalyzing them. I mean, that that is history in the making, isn't it? I mean, I I feel like if you're a proper curious historian, then then you can't really you can't really say that that's that's not history. <laughs> 
yeah, that was the the other the other thing I found slightly odd about it. Isn't like so relatively near to where I grew up. He said, pretending for a moment that he was not so parochial that he basically lives relatively near to where he grew up. Now, in in Bow, um, <laughs> there's a statue of William Gladstone, which was built as a thank you gift by the Bryant. That's Bryant, as in Bryant and May family, to basically thank Gladstone and successive liberal governments for not legislating to stop them providing an unsafe workplace for uh, predominantly the women who worked building the matches and and, and died as a result of of the poisoning from the phosphorus. And his hands are daubed in red paint, right? This is a a regular and, well, I was about to say it's a regular and repeated bit of vandalism in the East End. Of course, the hilarious thing is it turns out if you vandalise something enough times, it becomes a tradition in of itself. And there are sometimes concerns that, you know, as the area gentrifies, people are going to, like, forget to, like, dip the hands in, in red paint. And some people, and I think I'm broadly one of them, kind of think that one of the things which ought to happen with that statue is it should have a second plaque talking about the the women who died in the factories and how East Enders over generations have protest yeah you know, but it's fascinating isn't it right because and this is why i think so much time when people talk about history as if it's this weird immobile thing are kind of just being kind of completely sort of historically illiterate right then that act of vandalism has become history because eastenders have done it so often suggesting that if every couple of months someone started um you know if like the council got it out and then in cover of night some people dunked dropped it in the river then it would somehow become history but of course it's history that this has happened to it and that is you know the nature of remembrance is it's contested right you can see that would say the Cromwell monument which was essentially built by liberals big L as an act of like anti-conservative trolling to be like yeah look this great liberal hero of parliament who did lots of things you don't like who's built a statue to him we have that's the thing I find in these discussions with the statues. There's this sort of idea that like history is just this monolithic past. It's fixed and 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 it never changes. Rather than sort of the relationship between the current time and that past. Like I mean, you're both you're both historians, and I didn't study history, but isn't you know historiography the history of history? And definitely like from doing English and French, the thing you learn, like if you're studying Shakespeare. There's no monolithic Shakespeare. Like you can study Shakespeare as he would have been understood in his own time, or you can think about, you know, current postmodern approaches to Shakespeare. You can also study how the Victorians related to Shakespeare or how the modernists related to Shakespeare or how different or how academic traditions in other parts of the world relate to Shakespeare. That there's no, there's no just one Shakespeare in the same way that, the way we, we relate to, to things around slavery, to our imperial past, will keep changing. And the statue in Bristol was, you know, was only erected in the Victorian era. And, like, it, it itself was separate from the events it was depicting. And I, I just think that, the, yeah, this idea that we have to leave statues up because it changes history is just, just crazy. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So this is a really interesting counterfactual question. Would Keir Starmer have been a more appropriate leader of the opposition from 2015 to 2019 for the period where we needed scrutiny over Brexit? And would Jeremy Corbyn be a more appropriate leader for 2020 to 2024 or whenever the next election may be for the Black Lives Matter slash post-corona idealism era? I'm going to just go right off the bat with uh, having annoyed a bunch of people by in the first half of this podcast, I'm going to annoy the other half with my (laughs) immediate response, which is that there was never an appropriate time for the Labour Party to be led by a person who failed to deal with and oversaw the growth of anti-Semitism within that party. Like, yeah, real talk. I I find it astonishing the number of people who managed to not, not only both say, but in some cases tell me how important they find it to stand up to racism even when it's hard. It's just like, if if only there had been a recent moment demonstrating the weakness of your commitment to standing up (laughs) against racism even when it was hard. And I think like we shouldn't, not least because every excuse that has been made about that is every day demonstrated to have been untrue. In the, we every day now see people who had long-standing commitments or complaints being resolved much, much more quickly. It turns out actually that as the Jewish labor movement has repeatedly said, an institution's priorities are set by its leader. And I do not think there would ever have been a point when the when that would have been an appropriate position for the, the leadership of a major political party, certainly not a left-wing political party. I guess, yeah, to kind of return to the other question, as well as that kind of that reaction, I just kind of think, like, ultimately, I'm still not convinced that this pandemic will change society all that much. The historical thing is that people tend to kind of forget them very quickly, perhaps for the same reason people tend to forget being ill very quickly. And the day-to-day challenges of opposition, I think, are much better suited to that sort of dogged day-to-day, we want to do this and therefore we move that, with the question, actually, for both of those leaders, right? Jeremy Corbyn never had a compelling plan for what he wanted the Brexit debate to be resolved with. It's not actually clear if Keir Starmer knows what he wants to do at the end of these dividing lines. He's quite clever at drawing. It's just at the moment, politics is rewarding what we know his skill set to be. But we don't know if he's like the full Monty or whatever you want to call it. And we won't for some time. Hmm. Also, I think uh, I think sort of implicit is the qu- in the question is this idea that Keir Starmer was fantastic for for scrutinising what the Conservatives were doing over Brexit, which I know there's this celebration of him as a sort of forensic, loyally leader, which obviously he is. But I, I think that his political nose during the during the period where the House of Commons opposition to Brexit were trying to sort of 
stymie the, the, the Conservatives who wanted to go full throttle. I, I think his political nose was actually off joint, really, wasn't it? Because mm. he was the one who was pushing for a second referendum. I know that there were other people doing that a lot of, and the majority of Labour members wanted that. And so I understand that. And obviously that was a decision that meant that he was maybe in good stead to, to be elected leader after Jeremy Corbyn stood down. But in reality, in terms of chiming with what the nation wanted, including Remainers, as it turned out in the, in the election result, that wasn't the right instinct, really. So I do think if he was leader from 2015 to 2019, he would have just sort of scotched his opportunity to, to win an election and would never have been able to, to be a Labour leader in the post-Brexit era again. So I take issue with that part of the counterfactual. Yeah, I suppose the the thing that, that the question and, and Steve, the beginning of Stephen's response highlights is that because we've changed Labour leader, we aren't really able to see what the one Labour leader would have done in sort of in the case of two different forms of racism being brought up at the same time, like whether... You know, as the as the question says, you know, the BLM post Corona idealism, like we don't have the opportunity really to see. I mean, we can imagine, I think, but like we don't have the opportunity to see if or whether Jeremy Corbyn would have responded quite differently to this moment on on the issue of anti black racism and whether Jewish and black members of the Labour Party would have felt like their experiences of of two different kinds of racism were equally valid. And with a new Labour leader, certainly he has a really tough line on on anti-Semitism and he's determined to root it out of the party. I think that there's a new trend coming through. But Nadine White at Huffington Post has been doing some some really interesting reporting on how black members of the Labour Party are leaving because they don't feel like some allegations of racism that were that were raised in in a leaked report have been addressed properly we just don't have the one leader over the whole period it's harder to measure consistency there but also I think I I mean on a more prosaic point I just don't think that Keir Starmer would have been elected in the moment that that Corbyn was elected that in a sense they're each right for their time or it, it could never have been a different way because ultimately like the things that people value about Keir Starmer now like the way he's you know forensic and professional and you know he looks a tiny bit like David Cameron and he, you know he wears a suit and you know he's even even the fact that he's you know from basically a London elite even even if those aren't his his roots the way he sort of reflects that kind of an image are things that people respect and value in his leadership but at the point where Jeremy Corbyn was elected, I think that there was a, a general mood of frustration with career politicians and people who were too smooth and polished. And before loads of people reply to the podcast saying that Jeremy Corbyn was a career politician, I know. <laughs> but this this idea that he wasn't a typical politician and he wore tweed and, you know, he was an activist. I think that basically, like, I think people who who aren't fans of Keir Starmer would say that he triangulates on things. And I think he's been very tactical in a lot of the ways in which he has approached recent issues and being a sort of tactical as well as a constructive opposition and applying pressure where it will make a difference. But I don't think that people wanted that from a Labour leader or like the majority of people who joined the party to vote for Jeremy Corbyn weren't interested in that at that point. And it didn't work out. But Keir Starmer, you know, wasn't right for that moment for Labour members. 
one of the weird things about the beginning of the 2015 Labour leadership position was there were loads of members who were interested in Keir Starmer. I think primarily because they were interested in a blank slate, because the the non-Corbyn candidates were all in just so many different ways, just failed to inspire. And so whenever you'd kind of like, you know, sort of the, the kind of guaranteed way to make the NS's traffic chart sing was just to be like, could another candidate come through? <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it, the way that in many ways we kind of are seeing before our eyes the kind of creation of a a different, of a Corbyn era which didn't really happen, right? Like Corbyn triangulated like crazy on, you know, I mean, police cuts obviously being the er uh, the, uh, example, right? Like for the best part of five years, the Labour Party's, one of its its biggest and actually most successful messages was that the problem with austerity wasn't there were fewer police on the beat. And you can argue that that's right, you can argue that's wrong, but I think the one thing you can't argue with is and it was a form of, of triangulation. I think, Anoush, I completely agree with, with your point that the ultimate, the kind of interesting thing is, is that everyone has kind of forgotten is that Keir Starmer was at the least a co-architect of the Brexit policy. And whether you think that, and I guess I'm slightly less inclined to think that he did want to stop Brexit all along. And obviously none of us will ever know what his Brexit position was you know, in, in 2016, but a policy which it seemed to me at first had the central plan of keep the Labour Party together, which it did not do, hmm. frustrate and destroy the Conservative government of Theresa May, which it managed to do pretty well, win the general election after the, the fall and collapse and frustration of Theresa May's government, at which it was a catastrophic failure. And in an odd way, one of the fascinating things about the Starmer-Corbyn leaderships is this way that they are somehow both and in some ways, I think it's right to do this. In some ways, I think it's, it's it's the wrong analysis. They're both kind of allowed to float freely from one another. And so you have this kind of almost how different would the last five years have been if the architect of the Brexit policy of the last five years had been, had been at the wheel versus how different would it be if this non-triangulating guy had been leader when particularly yeah, on the issue that is top of mind. Although, of course, yeah, one of the, the many problems with the fact that organisations do not commit money in time to reliable polls of ethnic minority sentiments is we don't we don't know where it is that actually the median ethnic minority let alone the median black british voter is on issues like one of the things i thought was quite striking is that marvin Rees' very good answer was not actually materially different from keir starmer's it was reported on slightly differently probably because when a black politician says well i wouldn't have done it but i'm glad it's in the i'm glad it's gone down Everyone's like, ooh, he's lapsing into vandalism. Whereas when like a white politician goes, well, I wouldn't have done it, but, you know, it shouldn't be there. Everyone's like, oh, he's telling those nasty little thugs what to do. But it, their answer's the same, right? You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do consider subscribing if you're able. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Mm-hmm.